What I do love about cybersecurity, this industry more so than any other, if you just ask a question and put it out there, there is no field like this field where people are willing to explain, help, give you a video, a walkthrough, a demo. That means that this industry already has the inherent uh, bias towards curiosity, knowledge, helping, teamwork. I love that. You are listening to Ephemeral Security. Would you please state your name and what you do? My name is Iman Joshua, and I head up security and shared services for Vimeo. Oh, it's funny. I think I always called it like Venmo or I don't know. Oh, listen, I've gotten so many versions. Venmo, and I'm like, nope, nope, that's, that's not right. Or uh, Vimeo, I get a lot. So I'm going to say it for you all. It's Vimeo. <laughs> Awesome. So how did you get your start in information security or or what what made you want to get into it? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I started out uh, pre-med when I was in college, but I actually switched over from a degree in molecular biology to a computer engineering degree. I so enjoyed those classes. I just always loved computers. I remember way back in like fourth or fifth grade that we were, we were, we had a coding class and it was go to, and you could, you could, you could do a loop or you could, you know, create a nice linear program. And I got to do my very first hello world. I did that in fifth grade. Um, and I, I've always had a love for technology. So computer engineering, I, I guess I thought I was going to just be, you know, a dev for my professional career, but the combination of me having a knowledge in healthcare and in science and in um, and in computer engineering actually led me to my very first role as an analyst for Eli Lilly. And shortly after that, I was embroiled in security projects at that company. And then for the government, I helped roll out their first implementation of NIST 853 REV1. I was was around for REV1, right? I did it on 65 different systems. That was a that was really tough before I switched over to network engineering and then jumped into incident response and then you know, it became the the ever swirling circle of cybersecurity, and uh, you know, here I am today. That's awesome. <laughs> so, I, I bet a lot of technology really changed over the years, and like what was a threat and what wasn't a threat. Oh yeah, and like where the the perimeter is, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. and and all of that. Like, what what what, if, what do you think is different, and in, in terms of like how you have to protect companies now as it has. Oh my goodness. Things have changed so much. You know, one of the interesting things just in this field is seeing how different people have adjusted to the emergence and and really taking over of cloud environments. And where we used to think about protecting an asset was really at the perimeter of the company, which was defined by the network, right? So we spent so much time and effort in network security. And not to say that that is not important anymore, but where we focus our effort now is much more around like the identity of anything, right? Identity is the perimeter. I know folks have said that before. I'm sure it's a pretty common phrase, but you know that's really where we have to think. We have to break things down to their smallest, smallest levels and figure out exactly 
exactly what's required, exactly who are you? Do I Can I tell that you exist and identify the ways to protect even at the smallest levels in microservices and containers? It's, it's, it's an entirely different world. And so for folks who've been in security for uh, and, and in technology for as long as I have, the way that we think about things has really had to shift. I would say, you know, unless you were in on the ground up, uh, for digital transformation efforts, you spent a lot of time in the past seven to eight years trying to get trained up on on a big, big new world. Yeah, definitely, it's it's, it's crazy. Like, and then depending on your environment, uh, do you find that some users will kind of fight certain technologies or oh, um, want want went frictionless? I think that's the buzzword now. They they want a frictionless experience. <laughs> well, you know, Steve. Uh, I spent a good portion of my career in what I would call highly regulated environments, uh, working for the government, working in healthcare, working in highly, highly regulated environments that had so much that we had to document in terms of controls and show how we owned and protected them. When you think about cloud native environments, which is one of the places that I'm at today, it is the fearlessness of adoption of new technology is radically different, right? You know, you basically had to sell your firstborn to try to get, you know, some of these older companies that were really established with their own data centers to even consider what cloud adoption would look like and how we could secure it. And therefore, that fear prevented so many companies from taking that leap. And really, that's why we've seen so much usurping of market share in these new spaces. The newer cloud native companies don't have that fear, but they also have a different type of risk that they have to deal with. Is it full stack developers? Would, would that be the risk? <laughs> when were they not a risk? <laughs> <laughs> don't get me in trouble. I love every, I love I love developers. I love them all. Right. No, it's I, I don't know. It's I, was, I, was, I remember I was just I was, the other day I was thinking like, you know, like what happened? Like how do we end up here where like like, in, like it used to be DevOps that was like everyone was beating the DevOps drum for oh, like yeah. ten years, and and now it's the DevSecOps drum because, um, anyway, I love DevOps. DevOps is great for security if if security is baked in. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you end up with these giant cloud environments, uh, and nobody security is kind of an afterthought, right? Yeah. And then you have to bring in security to do the cleanup, and it's I don't know. That's what I kind of seeing now. And it's almost impossible to do it that way, right? Because look. The adoption of infrastructure as code and the capabilities to really uh, dictate and uh, and include security uh, from the gate is phenomenal and it's wonderful. However, uh, drift happens, right? Change happens, and we end up coming back down to still the foundational questions: What is a change? Who authorized it? Do you know what that change actually does? Have you truly considered the impact of that change, not only on your system, but on the other dependent controls in your environment? And can you prove that this is occurring, even in an automated fashion? Those requirements, the foundational concepts of, of security are still there. They're just implemented in a different way. So the shift is not to security, but rather how it's done. Yeah. Definitely. I would certainly agree with that. Yeah. So were there any mentors along the way that helped you over the years? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. But I'm going to say this. I learned from everyone, regardless uh, if I agreed with their posture, if I agreed with their leadership style, or even if I agreed with their principles. I learned from everybody that I that I've worked for. 
I definitely will give full kudos to leaders like Jim Ralph, who I was under for several years, Frank Price, who really put forth the idea that I could do it and had a had a lot of belief in me and had me leading extremely large scale uh, projects. There's many other female leaders that have helped me over the years that have helped me be the leader that I am today. So I would give a shout out to Karen O'Reilly Smith, who helped me understand that leadership can look different and that, you know, women can lead in cybersecurity and, and it'll be fine. And also to know how to have a great impact. Yeah, there's been there's been so many. I could I could keep going and list people after people, <laughs> but they're all they're all leaders that you would have heard of today if you look in the back corners of cybersecurity. We're 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 around and I, I've been thankful for all of my experiences. That's great. So you mentioned being a, a woman in cybersecurity. What do you think needs to happen to help reduce the, the gender gap uh, that's out there right now in, in information security? Yeah, Steve, I'm going to tell you, I follow a number of women in uh, cyber on like Instagram or you know Twitter, which is where security news breaks first. Uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you, DEF CON, right? Thursday, Friday. I did not go. I don't go to DEF CON because it makes me uncomfortable to be there because people are not inclusive or kind when I'm there. It is an interesting thing to be spoken down to as a woman in cybersecurity with as much as historical experience that I have, but it still happens. And it's it's unfortunate because that feeling of not being wanted or included in a conversation it makes you not want to participate. And that's why we see women not stepping up to the plate. Same thing for people of color or, you know, people with disabilities or anything like that. I think it's just about making people feel welcome. Yeah, definitely. What I do love, so I'll so I'll flip the script also and say what I do love about cybersecurity, this industry more so than any other, if you ask the question, if you just ask a question and put it out there. There is no field like this field where people are willing to explain, help, give you a video, a walkthrough, a demo. I love that. That means that this industry already has the inherent uh, bias towards curiosity, knowledge, um, helping, teamwork. It already exists. It's just about making sure that anyone can be the person asking the question. And I, for one, look forward to that day. I think that there's more and more um, people who are stepping up and making themselves known. And uh, I'm thrilled about it. So I know that this change is going to come because, look, there is a huge shortage of talent. Um, so many roles need to be filled. And guess what? They're not all going to come from one demographic. So let's we all need to pile in here to make it a, to make it a better place. So I look forward to it. I know it's going to happen. Just everybody needs to be a little bit more open about it. Yeah, I definitely agree. And like from what I'm seeing, like with uh, even my own kids' school, they're really working on including everybody, being inclusive. And like my daughter was taking some coding classes, and it's it's all boys and girls, and it's it's really cool to see everybody. Uh, interested in, in those kinds of things. Yeah. Whereas I think in the past, 
they're like, I, I remember reading something and it was saying that for younger girls, they would mark stuff that they considered quote girls toys to. And then for boys, they would market things like, oh, a computer kit or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so then it, it ended up being something that, oh, well, just boys do uh, computers. And this is, you know, years and years ago. But like, that's kind of how like the gender gap started from what I was reading. You know, Steve, I could go into like an entire diatribe about the concepts of teamwork versus individuality, how competition falls into play, how some of the some of the innate features of doing things as an engineer may not the the, the traditional ways that we teach it may not be as um, enticing to you know all groups of people. So. There's so much innovation that can and should come from the experiential space on uh, on engineering concepts across the board to make that to make it more inclusive, but particularly when it comes to cybersecurity. When I explain to people, when people say, Iman, well, what do you do? I'm an operational detective. That's what I am, right? I figure out why things are working the way they do. I understand processes. I figure out what could be wrong with those processes. And then I find ways to put them back together in a way that makes sense and and is more seamless. So many of the security things that we do are about changing the way people do things. So that means it's process-based and anyone can understand, fix, and secure a process. That just is what it is. That's a really great way of looking at it. I I love that. I haven't heard anybody put it that way but it makes sense. A lot of security really is trying to get people to do something for you. <laughs> you're always asking other people like, can you do this for me? Can you do that for me? So, I mean, what do you, how, how do you go about that when you're working, you know, across departments to, to get other teams on board with, with security, uh, especially if you're in a less regulated environment, Ooh. maybe with a with more cloud adoption, how do you, how do you convince people that they need to do something for security? So it's an excellent question, and I'm not going to pretend that I have succeeded uh, across all fronts. I, I have my battle scars, Steve. I have I have many, many battle scars. Uh, I have many, many experiences with shadow IT where it's like, oh, boy, that person still has access. How did that happen? There's a lot, okay? And so I humbly stand before you as someone who says I've been around long enough to know that I don't know it all, and I'm perfectly comfortable saying that, but... The way that I approach people and the way that I approach systems is with a lot of humility and respect. And then I just ask questions. And most people will tell you, Iman will ask questions until until there's nothing left. <laughs> and I, yes, it's it, it may seem like a weird kind of approach to doing it, but that's what happens. I just ask the question, okay, so is that supposed to be accessible? By who? Why? How long? How many times? Concurrently? Is is this scalable? All of those simple, simple questions are what lead to breakthroughs and what get people to care. I ask the questions that maybe not everyone's comfortable asking because they want to feel like they had to know more or present that they knew more during during the conversation. I ask those questions because I wholeheartedly believe that that's how you get to the root of the issue. And so even when working with developers or engineering teams, I do not start with, this is wrong. I start with, tell me what you were trying to do. (laughs) I like that. That's good. Yeah. It's It's an entirely different conversation. And that same conversation works with every team. It works with legal. It works with audit. It works with compliance. It works with sales. It works with marketing. It works with engineering. It works everywhere. 
And when I start that way on purpose and it ends the conversation better because when I leave a conversation, I want everyone to recognize we're partners in solving the problem. This is not a fence that you can throw the issue back over and then Iman will buy a tool, bleep, bloop, bleep, and someone somewhere is going to monitor and alert and that's going to solve the problem. That really is the option. I want us to figure out maybe we don't even need this process. Maybe this is something else we need to think about. And that it's a different type of conversation and it's been so helpful in getting things better secured over time and also getting people invested in security. Because I, my favorite thing to do, my favorite thing to do is be on a, a call and I'm not the one asking the security questions because everybody else is so concerned. I love that. Yeah. That means that I've influenced and I've done the right thing. That's great. You've planted like a, enough seeds Yes. One of the companies I used to lead, I gave all of their employees presentation at the very onset when I when I took over their security program. And the going discussion a year later was that I started that conversation with what would Iman do? And that was <laughs> <laughs> that worked out really well. I I should have put it on a bracelet. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That, that, that's really cool. It's a good way of looking at it. And you got to wonder, like, once people like start to already think like, oh, like, what would a mind do? Then it's like, maybe my job here is done. I don't know. I mean, like, how do you know when your job is done at, at a company? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's just so many secure companies out there, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> so you, you could try to check the security checkbox as many times as you want. But yeah, right? is anything ever really secure? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't just check security boxes anymore. I try to check risk boxes, and I, 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 I help people think about it differently. It's always been hard for me to leave companies because I love everyone so much, uh, and and I'm always trying to figure out what the next newest thing is. This field has changed so rapidly. Cloud security is so rapidly evolving. Um, you could go down a rabbit hole in just you know one capability, and and it would be like that for. You, you could stay there for a while. I look to leave and look for new opportunities when I think there's something new I can learn. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I know everything in the previous role that I was in or anything like that. It's just, ooh, is there a new challenge that is totally different? So, for example, the thing that was so compelling about uh, Vimeo as a company, which I, I do really enjoy the way that their leadership thinks about problems, is being truly part of a cloud native environment. So, you know, I've done transformation and let's, you know, cloud adoption and I've done on-prem, I've done colo data center. I've done, you know, tier three fully managed data centers and having to do all of that securing, but I had never really been with anything that started fully baked in the cloud. And so that was compelling. That's a compelling thing. So to to be able to have this experience and understand how risks dramatically shift in this space, that's a new and compelling challenge to me that's very interesting. And the concept of how this company needs to shift resources and scale um, at a moment's notice is not the same that you would expect in um, some of the highly regulated industries that I've worked for. So it's been a lot of fun working with this company. It's, it's been great. That's really cool. Yeah. And, and the, t- the type of scaling is, is different too, right? It's not like you've purchased a bunch of hardware and you've load tested and you're ready for like open enrollment. Oh, yeah. For our listeners, open enrollment is 
when you roll into your health benefits every year. Yeah. And so typically health companies will test uh, and, and, and do mock scenarios where they have thousands and thousands of people enrolling at once. Yeah, but it, but it's a short term issue. Yeah, scaling is different. Right. Yeah, but you buy hardware for the whole year. Yeah, and it's and it's got a, and it's got an upper limit, and so you've got that you've got that experience. But on, on the other hand, I'm currently in an environment where you can have a, a live streaming broadcast that needs to be secured in real time. That's very interesting. Also, really interesting is the concept. Uh, you would love this, Steve of uh, content moderation, monitoring, and and action against things like copyright infringement, but also like truly impacting people who are either exposing child sex abuse material or harmful or, or other harmful material or content, being able to moderate that as well. That's fascinating. That There's an entirely new challenge for me, and it's been so fun um, learning about the type of controls that we can apply and even spending time with thinking about how machine learning uh, and data analytics can impact those type of decisions in, uh, very quickly. It's been a that's it's such a fun new kind of challenge for me, and it's been it's been really interesting. That it sounds really interesting. So, um, so recently, I've been kind of looking into stuff. If you take yourself back. 25 years. Oh God. I was a baby, Steve. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Remember that. <laughs> Remember when you were a baby and somebody handed you, uh, in 1993, a disc, uh, three and a half inch floppy. Uh, for those, those of you listening that don't, don't know what that is, that is a, a U it's basically the USB stick of the nineties. Oh my gosh. Come on, Steve, let's make it fun. Maybe they handed me a zip drive. Do you remember those? Oh, I, the, yeah, I had the 100 megabytes. Yeah, drive. remember when that was like a thing? Like, oh, I can store 100 megs on this. <laughs> no, it was incredible. I I, I had one that, that could, uh, it was, it would literally kill computers. You plug it into the parallel port and like, <laughs> I, 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 I took out two computers, like my computer and my friend's computer. We brought it to the computer shop. Well done. And I told them, and, and I was like a kid and they didn't believe me. I was like in junior high or something. I'm like... They, they're like, yeah, sure. And they and then like they come back like 10 minutes later. They're like, yeah, this thing just killed three computers. <laughs> and so there was eventually a settlement and I got like a $200 check or something. But yeah, 100, 100 megabytes was the same thing. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for also taking me mentally back to the back to the old days of COBOL. Thanks. I appreciate that. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, man. I, I hope that's uh, I'm sorry you're remembering COBOL right now, but try to try, try to remember getting discs in the mail from a company called America Online. Oh, gosh. Yes. And there were free Internet for 30 days. Yes. Did, were you a part of that? Did you log into it? Uh, I did, but I also remember my very first experience of being able to make purchases and redirect them because AOL had some process inefficiencies back then. So yes, tell me, yes, what's your question, Steve? <laughs> so some people got their start in programming by copying or mimicking, uh, are you familiar with the program AOL at all? Mm, yes. It's where, it's where phishing kind of got its start, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and some people will decompile it and they make their own version of it, but it's also where, where automated phishing, uh, it's, it's the first time it happened, right? Because you have a bunch of newbies, right? Or noobs, I think was the term at the time, but basically people have never been online before ever. They're in new user chat rooms yep. and they're all excited to be online. Yep. And then, then they get the message that, oh, there's a problem with your password, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but it was like an it was an automated information gathering and it, kind of started a chain reaction, right? It probably would have happened anyway at some point, but 
that was the, the first time. Did you uh, have any experience with any of that? Or did you mess around with AOL's a- API? That's how I learned to program, right? Just using Visual Basic, interact with AOL's API, just making fun stuff happen in chat rooms, right? Like scrolling stuff and kicking people off. It was there was like it was kind of like the Wild West back then. Oh, yeah. If I were to be honest, I, I would say I played around a little bit. But my true first experience coding... <laughs> Ah, was like JavaScript. I was just doing pages and just playing around and seeing what I could do on like MySpace and seeing how many instances of myself I could create and and redesign different things and get people to, you know, contact me and connect with me. And yeah, I was playing around on web pages much more than I was breaking down or, or reverse engineering anything way back when. Yes. But since I was also a toddler at the time, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> How can you be both like old, old? Okay, I, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna guess your age, but Steve, that is one of the conundrums of time. <laughs> we, we, we live in multiple dimensions. This is all I'm telling you. You're gonna, <laughs> you're just gonna have to accept both of these things can the, be true. The, multi, the multiverse. <laughs> <laughs> You're presenting with two different ages for yourself now. I love it. Like you're a ba- you're a baby that knows COBOL, and then <laughs> I don't know. It's it's very. And then you're too. You're possibly too old to be a millennial. Yeah, but a baby that's that how that's COBOL. how we started. I think that I think the truth is in there somewhere. I guess it's like a phenom or something. Yeah, like a prodigy. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Um, <laughs> so. What is the the last book that, or maybe the last couple of books that really had an impact on you or changed the way you thought about things or did things? I pulled this up uh, because I loved I loved your questions. By the way, I thought that they were great. They were insightful and helped me start to kind of think back about my overall career and kind of how I got to where I am um, in cyber. So it's really cool. Thank you. I found uh, the last book that I really loved and made me think about things differently, which is Overcomplicated by Samuel. Arbisman. This is very cool because uh, Samuel Arbisman is taking a look into uh, the increasing complexity of systems. You know, we used to have an environment where people could inherently understand how systems worked, right? You had you had a back-end server with a front-end server with, with a protecting network. You maybe had a load balancer and this, because it's kind of it. Like you, and the internal architecture was very simply defined. But now we have uh, this complexity of scale, the microservices that exist, the interconnectedness of various systems are increasing reliance on these incredibly complex systems. And so for continued technological evolution to occur, you essentially have to understand that as a human, we have limitations in our ability to understand complex systems. Um, this is why this is why uh, very often when you have models that occur in, in machine learning, it's very difficult to understand how connections may or, or uh, results from the model may have been derived because as humans, we have limited ability to understand that huge amount of data. And that same thing is applying for systems. And so as a human, you have to abandon, especially as a technologist, you have to abandon that idea that you can truly understand everything that's occurring in a system that's occurring at at a time. You can understand concepts, you can understand, you can be, uh, you know, deep in a particular technology, but your ability to truly understand that whole system is going to be uh, 
uh, impossible. And so uh, as humans, we have to make a decision on trusting technology, understanding aspects of it, and recognizing that we will continue to have increased specialization of technologists, right? So, you, you know, back in the day, maybe you could just be a person that was into cyber, but at this point, maybe you're focused entirely on data analytics, or maybe your entire, you know, your specialization is here over in cloud security, but only for, you know, SaaS vendors, you know, and, and monitoring that type of thing. Your your ability to have that true generalist is, is not as, uh, it's not the same anymore because systems are, more, are so complex. I really enjoyed this book because it helped me, it helped free me from some of that uh, fear that I had that uh, I was never going to know enough to truly be able to answer everybody's questions. Right. Or to have that level of insight for understanding the potential risk to, to systems. And for people in this field, where often you're brought into a room and expected to know the answer, that's very that's a very difficult thing. People are bringing you in because they think that you're the person that's going to know the answer to this. And so that book was just radically transformative for me in terms of how I think about solving problems and addressing risks, like how I think about systems and their complexity, because before I would kind of go back and try to look at look at things holistically. Uh, now I do think just for this function, how do we secure just this? Let's do a threat model just for this. Don't do the threat model for the entire issue. Don't try to do it uh, for every release. Don't try to do it. Go down to just what is this function trying to do and how do we secure just that and do that over and over and over and over, preferably in an automated fashion until uh, until the model itself starts to you know grow and make sense on it on its own. I love that book. Uh, so that's overcomplicated. Uh, the other book that uh, I also really really enjoyed um, is Click Here to Kill Everything. <laughs> <laughs> what a great name. I already like it. Oh, wait. No, so this is Bruce Schneier. So if you know Bruce Schneier, he's a well-known person in cybersecurity who also has an amazing blog. If people still read those, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, But just his ability to explain the concepts of what's happening, how threat actors are shifting, how uh, things are becoming more, well, obviously they're nation state sanctioned and often supported, but definitely how our approach to securing assets is going to have to change and really focusing way down on data and its traversal throughout systems and focusing on securing that aspect versus uh, trying to just, you know, put tape around the box and, and, you know, secure a black box system. Really enjoyed that book. And he's got a great sense of humor as you're reading through it. So uh, I definitely recommend that book as well. Cool. That sounds great. Yeah. Better Providence is kind of like the holy grail, right? It's like after Snowden, it was like, yeah. if you can make a document unusable once it leaves your perimeter, like uh, that'd be like the holy grail, right? So people, yeah. it's funny, like D- DRM like made a comeback, right? Uh, after yep. Snowden, <laughs> at least, at least yeah. you know, people tried to make it uh, have a comeback. But unfortunately, like, I mean, at the other end, you have to have somebody with a program that can deal with the DRM. No, because it, data data is data is exponential. It is it is such an interesting uh, problem, uh, and uh, even so, look, I've I've done a lot of DRM tooling. The problem is, how do you identify all instances of uh, artifact of data? Wow, 
right? That's a, a, just that if you just start with just that question, you recognize the immensity of the problem. So a document that's been created and you can ensure that no, uh, that after a period of time it expires and you revoke it. Sure. That's great. How many different ways are there to ultimately represent that document? So if I send it to you, that's fine. But if I snapshot it, it's still mine. I can still read it. Uh, it's just in a format that now you can't detect. And there are there are infinite ways of changing the format to make it uh, less detectable. And so then you say, okay, well maybe if I maybe if I tag this data with something, or if I create a signal that I can search for throughout the world, well, okay, that's fine. But all you have to do is make a slight modification to to that original data artifact or find it from another location, which is what threat actors do. They go, okay, well, I, if I'm not getting it from you, I bet you it's out there somewhere. That that concept of, of data, uh, of true data governance is, it's, it's such an immense problem. I am thrilled for anyone who truly finds a solution for it, but it is, it, it is still a white whale for me just thinking about how to, how to attack the problem. And there are some applications where it can be very simply, uh, simply done, but I still find that there's just, just too many options for circumvention. But does that mean that we shouldn't, we shouldn't attempt? No, no. Someone should always ask the bigger questions. Someone should always think of ourselves and as, as, as problem solvers and people that should try to go to the moon. That's not for me. That's not, that's, not, that's not the problem I'm going to solve. I'm going to solve the ones that I can. Fair enough. So are there any like passion projects that you have? Uh, I will tell you during the last 18 months of the Panini. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is that how you refer to it? <laughs> yeah, I got tired of saying the other one. During this Panini, I have spent uh, a lot of time actually just mentoring folks who wanted to enter the field. So I haven't been kind of building anything on my own, but I'm pretty excited with some of the work that I have, that I've seen some of the people who are getting roles and, you know, switching jobs. And I, I think my ability to be a mentor right now has been really great. That's, that's great. So how did you start being a mentor? Like, how did you uh, get into doing that? Someone emailed me and said, Hey, can I talk to you once in a while? Oh, that's great. It was as simple as like literally simple as that. I'm happy to do it. It was a revelation realizing that I had something to share. Right. And that somebody would want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate it. Yes. I. Uh, there's so much more that I, I bet you we could talk about. Definitely like security uh, in, in the privacy space. There's so like there's a, I, I was writing down all of these other cool things that I would want to uh, that I would want to share or talk about. But I think I think this was good. I definitely have a huge opinion on third party security. And if you want to tell me some of that now, it's fine. I don't know. Well, let me ask you a question. How, how about that? Sure. Because you've, you've been asking me questions. So I'm going to ask you one and, and maybe we'll use that for our last our last little bit of conversation. <laughs> All right. Sure. All right. So cloud security, we talk about the, the shared security model. Right. So the, uh, you know, yeah. cloud providers are responsible for a portion. The customer is responsible for a portion. Generally, you know, that's that's, you know, that's all that the application space, et cetera. But the customer area of security is where most of the vulnerabilities still occur. Right. So is the model flawed? Is the shared responsibility model flawed? I'm done. I got to ask the question. Okay. So is it flawed? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily flawed. It's like, so it's kind of like running a car, right? So like when you're in the cloud, you're really running a car pretty much and you're going to, you're going to drive in it. So 
when you are spinning up a bunch of servers, you're you know using their hardware, but you're responsible if you crash the car, right? Um, or if you know you leave it unlocked or whatever. So I don't necessarily think it's flawed. I think that the capabilities to do inspection in the cloud, I, it's it's unfortunate that you can't do true uh, network intrusion prevention in the cloud. Uh, if there's two IPs in the same subnet, mm-hmm. uh, that's. Yep. But you can put a compensating controls, right, and see after the fact what happened. So I definitely I have a lot of feelings about that, but. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily think that it's flawed. I think that that's part of the bargain when you, I mean, when you go to the cloud, that's what you're accepting, right? You're accepting, you're accepting the serializability model. Yeah. Right. Uh, I want to, I want to, I'm going to pull on the needle of this, of, of this car idea for a second. Right. So sure. uh, you're absolutely right. You know, you have, you own the, you, you own the contract and you have borrowed the car. Right. But let's say that you are renting, like you started out renting um, a Yugo or uh, like a, a, a tiny inexpensive car. But every week that you rent the car, they switch it out for a newer, faster one with more capabilities, right? But you rented, you rented the, 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 the cheap car, the, the putt-putt car uh, and those capabilities. But every week uh, you get a newer, faster car. So now... You are you're you're sitting in a Lamborghini, but you rented you rented the first car. Now they're switching it every week, and it's awesome. You got a cooler, nicer car every week, and yeah, you may pay a little bit more, but wow, it's so much faster. If you crash the Lamborghini, <laughs> but you rented a putt putt car, is it? Whose fault is it that you went too fast? Does the company bear any, does the provider have any responsibility or accountability for the additional features that they continue to provide to you? And does that make that model, does that model still hold? So I guess it's the risk you're accepting, right? Like when you, when you, when you go to the cloud, that's the risk uh, you have to accept that risk if you, if you want to drive it all, right? Kind of, except for you can't not have a car for this purpose, right? Because now you're dependent upon that car. It's not an option for you to walk anymore, right? Um, that that is right. not that's not capable. So it's it's an interesting thought about how it goes back to that that concept of a tool that I that I shared earlier, right? That we are putting largely increasing capabilities, increasing scalability, increasing functionality uh, week over week. It's nearly impossible for any you know small group of individuals to truly understand all of those assets, uh, increasing capabilities over time. But we're still saying, hey, by the way, you break it, you bought it. You're you're the one that's accountable for it. Right. So. But that's like fault tolerance. All I'm saying is, as 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 that scale continues to increase, I challenge that that uh, that that the original shared security model is as effective. That it is as effective, you said, as as, as traditional security. Yeah, I, I just I just think that there's there's a, there's those unintended consequences, and and I don't I think that there's there's a little bit of a flaw there, and so I'm curious. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, when you talk about the crashing Lamborghini, it's more like the movie. Speed. Yes. Um, There's a bomb on the bus. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Hotshot. (laughs) I love that movie. Oh, thanks. I'm going to watch that again. That's awesome. Go ahead. Oh, it's so good. It was like, it's like pop question, (laughs) Hotshot. 
But uh, no, it's like you know where they have to get they have to they have to leave the bus at fifty five miles an hour and transfer vehicles or whatever, right? So um, or either that or you have to build in fault tolerance, right? That that's you have to like expect failure. But I mean, you could pay extra though if you want to stay on like the same cluster, mm-hmm. or if you want to have your own hardware in the cloud. So there there are other options as opposed to having it changed out mid flight. Uh, I could push and still disagree there because uh, even if you were to move to, you know, brick and mortar, you, you, like you can't possibly scale cost effectively in comparison to, you know, having a cloud environment further. It's highly unlikely that you would be able to build all of the services that you need internally. So eventually through either uh, through either a third party or through just architecture, you are going to adopt the change has occurred. You're you're going to right. you're, you are reliant, and so that's that's interesting to me. It's interesting, and so I just I think about that often as a professional. How am I supposed to secure increasing capabilities that happen so quickly? They are so uh, that are so available. H- how how can any team be expected to to keep up with that? And it's not a slight on it's not a slight on any cloud provider. I think the I think that uh, I've seen amazing things done in AWS and GCP. And hey, look what Azure has been doing. I mean, I I think I've seen amazing things. But what I am saying is that the model as it is defined makes it almost impossible for the customer to succeed, which is why 99% of uh, exposures are happening on on that customer side. It's, it's, It's almost impossible to to solve. Are we talking about cloud security posture management here? Yeah. And and, and then, okay, so there's, I've actually been delving a ton into this. Oh, thing, yeah. Like a ton. So um, I recently got four AWS certificates in like a month. Yeah, I saw. Um, just, but I, but I, have, uh, I'm, I had a lot of experience at AWS before that. But so there's, at least in AWS land, there's service control policies where you can basically put guardrails in your environment, right? As, as we all should. Right. And then... Yeah, I, I think part of the problem with the cloud is you can move extremely quickly, mm-hmm. but you but they don't, and they make it very easy for folks to set things up in a way that is insecure. Um, and a lot of times, people don't have the knowledge of the right way to set things up, and they'll leave like port three three eight nine open to the internet, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then people are just hammering your after, and maybe they do it with an SCCM server, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And they and then you have the bad guys just hammering it, and. I guess I'm kind of agreeing with you partially with this. Oh, I love when it happens, (laughs) Dave. You're going to think about this later. Because they make it so easy to to be insecure. And they're like, like, well, you know, they're leaving leaving it on the, let's say you're going to be driving a car. And I I don't want to say, well, there's seatbelt or no seatbelt. Because I guess it's your option if you want to wear a seatbelt. But I, I feel like it's almost like, they're giving you a death trap in some situations. Yes, oh, and look, like, look, you have to look cl- you're with me now. You're with you, me. You have to claw your way out of it. Well, first you have to know how to, so this is, I, I use the car for a reason because when you get into these these uh, higher level performance vehicles, you actually really should be trained in how to drive them, right? This is, it's not, right. it's not your everyday vehicle. And so there's, there are different things, but you know, you're thinking, you're, you're saying like the seatbelt and, and thinking like door locks where there is some individual responsibility, but I'm saying that, you know, you have to know the features of the car in the first place. And it it always comes back to that. And so I'm really curious about it. And it's something that's on my mind. You know, one of the questions you asked was what keeps me up at night? And that's what keeps me up at night. How do I help balance the need for innovation 
right? And freedom to, to innovate for engineering teams. How do I balance that with securing those assets that, that a company holds uh, most closely? And all I'm saying is that in, in this model where I'm, I'm seeing company after company, and remember, I started this conversation saying, you know, I'm humble. Uh, I do not pretend to know everything. Uh, I, in fact, many times very proudly say, I, I know nothing. Teach me something about this. That's what I like to say. <laughs> uh, I just recognize that there's a mountain ahead of me that is amazing opportunity and innovation, but also incredible, incredible risk. And I wonder if anybody thinks about that. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I, I guess for that, it's almost like you have to embrace a dev SecOps culture and kind of have like your developer play land in their own accounts. Yep. But then when it comes to like going to prod, as long as you have the infrastructure as code, and then I think it's, I think the new thing I'm hearing now is compliance as code. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting one and something we've been playing around with. There's a lot of, there's a lot of really great checks and enforcements and gates you can do as part of your CICD pipeline that will reinforce things that have not been, um, that previously you would have to kind of sit down and consult on. So there, yeah, that's some good stuff. Yeah. I, I guess, yeah, I think, I feel like security is playing catch up here with a lot of this stuff. And sometimes it's even something as simple as like, what is my external footprint for my company? And that can be uh, a very, a very tough question to answer sometimes, depending on the size of your company. What is an external footprint for a cloud native company? Mm-hmm. Um, so it'd be, the, the way I would answer it is that you need to look at every single DNS zone that you own that's public. You have to get all the records in that zone. Uh, to, and then you need to check what ports are open on those right publicly. Uh, aside from that, you have to look at all of your cloud accounts and anything that's reachable externally in all the cloud accounts, right? I mean, if it just were a cloud native company, um, that'd, that'd, that'd probably be be most of it. But there's you know certainly other situations where stuff ends up being public. Let's say there's a third party. Mm-hmm. Um, some companies will uh, have like WordPress sites, for example, hosted yep. with WP Engine, right? And so it's like, you know, right? How do you, and, and they're, and they're, for whatever reason, they're not in a DNS zone that you know about, right? And then, you know, oh, the WordPress site got hacked. And it's like, well, nobody knew about the WordPress site. That's <laughs> so it, 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 it can certainly be, be tricky. There's, um, I was reading, I think a company called Expanse by Palo Alto uh, recently acquired them. They have some very interesting patents around this to, to help identify people's external footprints. It's it's pretty interesting. It's like they that they, they have processes, which we talked about earlier, to identify uh, your external footprint in data centers with ISPs uh, and clouds. It's, it's pretty cool. I don't know. I bet that's that's what keeps me up is is like knowing definitively what my external footprint is because you can't defend it if you don't if you don't know it's there. Yeah. I've, I've, I have I have feelings about that. I think about resold capabilities, things that have been packaged uh, and and are not potentially owned by my company, but or a company that I've worked for, but instead are still either mimicking the infrastructure very very closely, but are not being monitored by me, or uh, have been Im- improperly attributed. So there's there's a lot there's that attribution point. I don't know, Steve. I, I, I it's a good start. Yeah, it's tricky. So um, we should probably wrap it up. I do have to. Yeah, my my wife keeps messaging me, but um, <laughs> it was. Uh, that's okay. I have I have a child at the door that's like clawing to get in. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it was uh, really awesome to speak with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. This is an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, 
I, I look forward to, to hearing more from you. Cool. 